We are in the middle of a study through the book of Romans, a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Romans. We've been at this now. This is the 19th lesson, and we are on the first verse of Romans chapter 4. So we left off. It's been a week or so since we had actual Sunday school, but we left off. Where we left off was at the very end of Romans chapter 3, and this morning we're going to get into the first five verses of Romans chapter 4. Now, Romans chapter 4, in Romans 4, Paul uses the example of Abraham to prove that God has always justified people by faith and not by the works of the law. This chapter examines the kind of faith that Abraham had, and Paul's point is simple. If we have the same steadfast faith in God that Abraham had, then we will be justified just like Abraham was justified. And that's important to note. Paul doesn't use Abraham's life and his experience as an example of foreshadowing. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the Old Testament foreshadows the cross. It, it's kind of a, an illustration of what is going to come. That's not the way that Paul views Abraham's life. Abraham's life is not a, an example of what might be after the cross. It's an actual example of justification by faith. This is, this is the primary purpose for sharing Abraham's story. The primary purpose for telling us of Abraham's ex- experience, both here and in the other context of the New Testament where justification by faith is discussed, Abraham always comes up because Abraham underscores the fact that this is how God has always saved. Abraham predates the law. The covenant that God made with Abraham is before the covenant that God made with Moses. Amen. Abraham's life, his experience, how he is saved by his faith demonstrates to us how we are saved today. It demonstrated how they were saved under the law, how the, how the law was supposed to work, and how that grace works today in our day and age. So it's a real life, real world Example And no better example could have been chosen than Abraham because the Jews held Abraham in the highest esteem. They, they regarded him as the father of their race. There were no Hebrews before Abraham. He was, God called him out of the Chaldees. He called him and established him to become that people, that, that he was the root of the tree, amen, from which everything else came. And God's covenant with Abraham was based on the status that his children and their children's children would be a special people to God. That is, we talked about uh, several times over the first several chapters of the book of Romans, that sense of superiority that the Jews had. That sense of superiority comes from the fact that they are the descendants of Abraham. So Abraham is the best example that Paul can use to establish justification by faith. More importantly... God called Abraham his friend. Amen. He said that Abraham was the friend of God. And if the friend of God can't be saved by works, then how can anybody else be saved by works? That's the message of Abraham. So we get into Romans chapter 4, verses, and we're just going to do five verses today, verses 1 through 5. Amen. It says this. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? 
For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So we'll start with verse 1, which says, What shall we say then, that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? And so verse 1 establishes the validity of using Abraham as an example. It very pointedly calls Abraham the father of all who walk by faith. Abraham is the father of the faithful. And so Paul starts this section of the letter with a question. How then was Abraham saved? Regarding the matter of justification, how does Abraham fit into the picture? And that sets up the main point of the whole chapter. Even Abraham was justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Amen? Verse 2 says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. In response to the question of verse 1, well then how was Abraham saved? Verse 2 considers the possibility, the hypothesis, that Abraham might have been justified by works instead of by faith. And if Abraham was counted righteous on the basis of his works, if he was saved by what he did, Paul says, then he had something to boast about in his salvation. He could have bragged about what he did that caused his salvation. He could have bragged about the works that he done that that caused God to honor him and, and save him. He could have boasted. But the boasting would have been in himself, not in God. This is a principle that Paul also espouses in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 9. If we're justified by anything that we do, if we're justified or saved by our works, then we would be able to boast about what we have done instead of what God has done. But that's not the case with Abraham. Abraham was not saved by his works, and he had nothing that he could boast about in the sight of God. The final phrase of the verse, but not before God, is the complete rejection of the whole hypothesis that Abraham could have been saved by works. Not in the sight of God, he couldn't. Not before God, he could not. Abraham, just like us, if his works were measured in the sight of God, he falls short. If his works were measured next to the righteousness of God, there's not enough good works in his life to save him, just like you and just like me. If all of my works are measured against the righteousness of God, I fall inadequately and woefully short of the measure of righteousness. I can't be saved by my works. Amen? Now, verse 3 says, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Verse 3 provides the antithesis to verse 2. Paul now bypasses all human opinion 
and go straight to the Word of God for an answer to the dilemma. The, the testimony of Scripture, he says, will provide for us the answer to the question, what did Abraham do? How was Abraham saved? If we're going to deny the hypothesis, then we're going to do it in the Word of God. And what does the Word of God say? Was Abraham justified by works? No. How do we know that? Because of what the Scripture says. The Word of God is the final authority to answer the question. Just a little side note, and I won't spend a lot of time here, but the Word of God is the final authority to answer every question. The Word of God is the final authority to appeal to with every question in your life, with every circumstance. If you've got a question about the Bible, the answer doesn't come from philosophy. The answer doesn't come from man-made dogmas. The answer comes from the Word of God. The answer comes from Scripture, and that's the principle that Paul employs here. If we want to know how Abraham was saved, let's don't go ask somebody. Let's not go look it up in a book somewhere. Let's go to the Word of God, and let's see what the Bible says about how Abraham was saved. And this is what the Bible says. How, for what saith the Scripture? The Bible says Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That statement is taken directly from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. It is the equivalent of saying Abraham was justified by faith. He believed and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Paul quotes this same verse in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6 as he establishes there also the doctrine of justification by faith. And James quotes it in James chapter 2 and verse 23 in the same manner to establish the, the working of faith. Amen? According to Scripture, Abraham believed God. And when he believed God, God reckoned it to him. God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, let me, let me give you some insight into that. God made several astoundingly important promises to Abraham. He, he spoke things to Abraham that were beyond the grasp of human understanding. First, God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation with a numberless, with an offspring that couldn't be numbered, greater than the sands in the sea. Abraham didn't even have a child at the time. Secondly, God promised him and his offspring, the, the offspring that he didn't yet have that was going to number as the sands of the sea, that they would possess a land that he didn't own, a land that he hadn't even seen yet. That they would go there and that the inhabitants of that land would be driven out or would leave and would surrender their, 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 their possession, their, their right of ownership. And that these children of Abraham were going to live there forever. They were going to own it. It was going to be their inheritance from God. And third, most significantly, God promised Abraham that all the people in the earth... Every man, woman, or child who ever lived would be blessed through him. And you know what the wonder of it all is? Abraham didn't stagger at the promises of God. 
Abraham didn't doubt that God could do with what he said he would do. The point is that in regard to those amazing promises, in regard to those promises that were beyond the scope of human understanding, Abraham humbly believed that God would do what God said that he would do, that God would keep his word because he believed God. He surrendered himself to God and rendered to God the obedience that comes from faith. That's the key to his salvation. He believed. His was not mere mental assent. Okay, God, I believe you. But when God said, come out of Ur, he went out. When God said, go, he went. When God said, take your child, your only child, and lay him on an altar and sacrifice him unto me, Abraham packed up the wood and he got the kid and they went to the mountain and he built the altar and he did what God told him to do. The obedience of his faith was based in the fact that he believed that God would do what God said that he would do his belief produced obedience in his life. The statement quoted by Paul from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 occurs specifically on one of the occasions when God promised Abraham an innumerable offspring in Genesis 15 and 5. But what we've got to conclude from the usage of this passage and the usage of that verse is that this was not the only time that Abraham believed, nor was it even the first time that Abraham believed, nor was it possibly the, the first time that his belief was credited to him as righteousness. I know this because the exact same passage is used in James chapter 2 and verse 23 that Abraham believed and God counted to him for righteousness. But in James, James doesn't reference that first promise. James references the, the occasion whenever God told Abraham to take Isaac and lay him on an altar as a sacrifice. And Abraham, in obeying God there at that later point in his life, years removed from Genesis chapter 15. Years and years later, whenever God tells him, take Isaac and place him on an altar, and Abraham obeys, James quotes the same verse and says, by his faith, it was counted to him for righteousness. The implication is that Abraham's faith and the resulting justification, the resulting righteousness were present from the first day that God called him until the day that his life ended. It wasn't a one-time event. It wasn't some moment somewhere in the past where he believed unto salvation and he was saved and he never lived anything out after that. It was a continual presence in his life. His faith compelled him to obey. God made him a promise, and he believed. God said, come out, and he went out. God said, go therefore, and he went therefore. And God said, I'm building an altar, and he built an altar. And God said, bring me your son, and he brought There was something about Abraham that was a consistent attitude of faith that said, I'm going to obey whatever God tells me to do. When he calls me, I'm going to go. Whenever he speaks to me, I'm going to obey. Whatever he says to me, that's the way I'm going to live. It was a change in Abraham's life because of his faith. Years later, when God would order him to sacrifice his son, he doesn't hesitate. He obeys God. He did what he was called to do. 
because his life was governed by faith. And faith always results in action, in obedience. Faith produces works in your life. Amen. So throughout Abraham's life, the faith that justifies him is evident in his actions. It's evident in what he does. It impacts the whole of his life. It's more than just mental assent. It's more than just saying, well, I believe you, God, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I believe you, God, but that's not going to impact the way that I live. I believe you, God, but I'm just going to continue on the way I've always been. I believe, God, that you've got a plan for my life, but I'm just going to ignore that plan. I believe, God, that there's a purpose why you've called me, but I'm just going to keep on going the way that I've always been going. That's not the kind of faith that Abraham had. That's not the kind of faith that saved him. The kind of faith that saved him was faith that said, I believe you, God, and I'm going to act on that belief. I believe you, God, and I'm going to obey what you've called me to do. I believe you, God, and I'm going to take heed to your word and I'm going to do what you've said that I should do. Abraham. Amen. Abraham. (laughs) Abraham believed God. He had faith and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now that does not mean that faith itself is righteousness or that faith itself is becomes righteousness the value of faith depends totally on the object of the faith Abraham's faith becomes righteousness because Abraham's faith is in God faith derives its efficacy faith derives its effectiveness Not from the one trusting, but from the one being trusted in. Can I get an amen? If Abraham had displayed complete and total faith in something other than God, it would not have resulted in his justification. It would not have made him righteous. Faith, then, is the condition not the grounds of his salvation. Faith is the method or the channel, not the basis of receiving salvation. Salvation depends on God. Salvation comes from God. Salvation comes from the grace of God. In order for faith to result in righteousness, it doesn't, it's not just any kind of faith. It's not just the faith that I produce. It's the faith that is placed in God. God and nothing else. Amen. The Hebrews had faith in the works of the law. They had faith in their own works to save them. That kind of faith doesn't save. It's faith in God that saves. The word translated, it was counted is a really important word. We're going to see it 11 times in this chapter. It is a technical term that describes the procedure of entering a debit or a credit into a 
account ledger. How many took accounting in high school or college? The only class I ever hated. And that's the honest truth. I, I love school. I love, I love learning. I love classroom. I love applying myself to, to learning. I hate accounting. I absolutely abhor it. To, somewhere in my mind, debits are supposed to be credits, and credits are supposed to be debits, and I ain't never been able to reconcile that in my mind. But the term that Paul uses as an accounting term is a term that, that has to do with, the, with inscribing it in a, in a ledger. It means to credit or to impute or to reckon or to count as or to put on someone's account. In this case, it was credited or it was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Notice the distinction. Faith isn't righteousness, but faith in God counts as righteousness. You get it? His faith alone doesn't save him. But his faith in God that produces obedience to the word of God counts to him as righteousness. It gets inscribed in the ledger book as righteousness. The righteous character of God is where the righteousness comes from. Amen. We are covered with his righteousness. We are covered with Jesus Christ was sinless, without spot and without blemish. I can't stand before God in my righteousness. I need his righteousness. And his righteousness is counted for me when out of my faith I obey him. Amen. The law of God has to be fully satisfied before a person can be saved. The satisfaction of the law of God is the basis for salvation. Theoretically, anybody could satisfy the the law's commandments through perfect obedience and that obedience would be to themselves would be their own personal righteousness that could save them but as we've seen paul made the case way back in chapter one has built on it ever since the human condition makes that impossible we cannot live a perfect life we cannot fully obey the law of god we don't have the ability to, to manufacture our own righteousness. That's why God must credit to our account his righteousness. That's why God must credit to our account something else to us as righteousness, the righteousness by which we are saved. And in this case, as in every case of salvation, the obedience of faith is what is counted as righteousness. And the righteousness comes from God because the faith is in God. If I obey the word of God in the belief that my obedience will save me, then I've misplaced my faith. But if I obey the word of God in the belief that God will save me, then that faith in God results in righteousness. Does that make sense? It's not just about obeying the letter of the law because obeying the law is what saves me. It's about obeying God because God 
is who saves me. Amen. So if I repent of my sins in the belief that God alone can forgive me of my sins, getting down on my knees and repenting of my sins, that action isn't what saves me, but it is my belief in God and my obedience to the word of God that is counted to me for righteousness. If I go to the water and I'm baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in obedience to the word of God, it's not the act of going to the water and being baptized that saves me, but it's my faith in God and in obedience to the word of God that saves me and is counted to me as righteousness in baptism. Amen? It's not the obedience or it's not the works and it's not the things that I do, it is the faith that is put in God that results in obedience and results in works and results in things that I do. If I surrender myself to God and he fills me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost and I speak with another language, the Spirit of God gives the utterance. The act of speaking in tongues is not what saves me. Amen? God alone saves me. And my faith in him, coupled with my obedience to his word, that's what saves me. Receiving the Holy Ghost is the demonstration of my faith. Amen? Just like Abraham's faith was demonstrated when he packed up his family and said, Come on, we're leaving Ur. God called me out of the land of the Chaldeans. Or whenever he took Isaac and his servants and the bundle of wood and they traveled so far and he told the servants said you wait here me and the boy we go to worship and we will come again that's faith that's obedience that's saying God I'm going to do exactly what you told me to do but I'm not relinquishing my hold on your promise this boy that you've given me is your promise And if we go together to that mountain, and if we build an altar together, and if I do what you've called me to do, the New Testament tells us Abraham believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. He was going to do exactly what God told him to do because he believed in the promise of God, and God promised him that through that son, he was going to multiply his seed until it numbered as as the seas on the shore of the seaside. Is the sand on the shore of the seaside. It was faith in action. It was obedience. Verse 4 says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So ba- verse 4 sets forth a basic principle of economics, namely the relationship between works and wages. When a man works... His wages are not given to him as a gift, but as an obligation. He has earned them. When you do a job, you don't go to your employer and ask him for a charitable donation to your cause. When you do a job, you don't go to your employer and ask him for a gift. You go to your employer and you ask for the paycheck that he owes you because he owes you a debt because you have worked. Your employer doesn't look at your paycheck as a gift. 
Your employer doesn't look at your paycheck as a charitable donation. Your employer sees your paycheck as a debt that he's paying or that she's paying because they owe that to you. A wage is something that is owed to you. You've worked for it, you've earned it, and you deserve it. And from the perspective of the employer, a wage is an obligation. It's a debt that is owed to the worker. When Paul says... To him that worketh, it is apparent that he's referring to anyone who is trying to relate to God through works, who's trying to earn their salvation, because trying to earn your salvation is like working for a wage. It's like working so that somebody owes you something. The problem with that kind of approach to salvation The problem with trying to earn your salvation is that God only owes you one wage. My Bible said the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. He only owes you one wage. Trying to earn your salvation is to ignore that the only wage that you've ever earned in your life, the only wage that your acts have ever produced for you is the wage of death and judgment. You can't earn salvation. You can't earn your way into heaven. You don't get good enough to get God. Your works have only earned you one thing, condemnation, judgment, death but salvation is the gift of God and salvation comes by grace that's a gift that's a charitable thing through faith and God credited Abraham's faith as righteousness this this means that Abraham didn't earn righteousness by his works remember we said faith isn't it's not faith equals righteousness it's that obedient faith in God counts as righteousness. God counted his faith. He counted his obedience. He counted that faith that was placed in him as righteousness. He didn't earn it. Amen? Now, that doesn't mean that what Abraham did is insignificant. That doesn't mean that his actions didn't matter. Because his actions were the demonstration of his faith. Had he not believed, he would not have left Ur. And if he said he believed, but he stayed in Ur, then he didn't really believe. When God said to Noah, build a boat. And Noah believed God, he built a boat. But if Noah said he believed God and didn't build a boat, that means either one, Noah don't care for his life, or two, he doesn't believe it's really going to rain. Because faith produces obedience. And if, if Abraham had not believed God, if he had not believed that God who gave him that promised son was able to preserve his promise even beyond death, then he would have never built an altar and laid Isaac on that altar. But by building that altar and laying Isaac on that altar, he's demonstrating his faith. I believe. 
I believe that no matter what happens, God's going to preserve his promise. I believe that no matter what, what occurs, no matter what happens on that mountaintop, me and that boy are coming back down. I believe it. Amen. So what Abraham does matters because what he does demonstrates his faith. But the act of leaving Ur is not the grounds upon which he was saved. He wasn't saved because he left Ur. He was saved on the grounds of his faith in God, which compelled him to leave Ur. He wasn't saved because he laid Isaac on an altar. He saved because of his unwavering faith in the promise of God, which compelled him to lay Isaac on an altar. I said, well, Brother McCall, that's awful technical. That's exactly what Paul is doing in the book of Romans, is explaining the technicality of your salvation. He's explaining in very deep theological terms what happens when you obey the gospel. If Abraham didn't believe in the promise of God, if he wavered in his faith, then he would have not have gone through with the sacrifice of Isaac. So what he did matters. But what he did is not the technical grounds upon which he was saved. He was saved by the faith that caused him to do what he did. Verse 5, and I know I'm, I'm kind of going long, but we're going to do verse 5 and get finished up pretty shortly, I promise. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So in verse 4, Paul stated an economical principle with an implied theological application. Now in verse 5, he just skips the principle and goes straight to the application. He's getting a little excited. He feels like he's getting long-winded, kind of like I'm feeling. And he said, I'm just going to kind of skip the, the basic part, and I'm just going to go right to the principle. And what he says is, when a man does not attempt to base his salvation on works, but instead believes on God, then his faith is counted as righteousness. He receives righteousness from God as a free gift by grace, not as the payment of a debt. Now, according to this verse, the man who is justified by faith is the man that worketh not. Now, that's a provocative phrase. What does Paul mean by the man who does not work does that mean that the man never obeys does that mean that the man never demonstrates the kind of faith that we've talked about Abraham had that was demonstrated by what he did is Paul saying that works are completely irrelevant to salvation even to the extent that a person can have faith just bare faith alone without any kind of acts, without any kind of demonstration of that faith and be saved by that faith? That can't be what Paul is saying because if it is, we've got to cut chapter 6 out of the book of Romans. The best way to understand the phrase, him that worketh not, is to understand it as a reference to the man that does not look to his works for the basis of his salvation. 
that does not look to his works as the means by which he lays a hold of the righteousness of God. It's the man who does not trust in his works or depend upon his works for his right standing before God. The phrase doesn't mean that they don't obey. The phrase doesn't mean that there is no demonstration, but rather it means that he doesn't depend on his obedience for his salvation. Listen, the contrast... Verses 4 and 5 present an antithesis. There's a contrast. The contrast between verse 4 and verse 5 is not a contrast between the man who works and the man who does not work. It's not a contrast between the man who obeys and the man who does not obey. It is a contrast between a man who trusts in his works and a man who trusts in God. It's a contrast between the man who believes his works earn him his salvation and the man who understands that my salvation comes from God and God alone. That's the contrast. The point here is not the presence or absence of obedient works. The point here is the object of the faith. The point here is what they believe in faith receives its efficacy from its source it's made effective by what it is placed in and the point here is that faith in god and god alone has the power to save faith in our works can only condemn us because our works result in death amen i want to wrap up verse five with one final thought the most striking phrase in the five verses that we've read today is found here where Paul declares that God justifieth the ungodly. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him, that being God, that justifieth the ungodly. To the Jewish reader of this letter, that phrase jumps out from the text because it presents a paradox. The word ungodly is a strong word. It refers to the wicked. It is, it is the state of ungodliness or lawlessness. And that description matters because in the Old Testament, God demanded that human judges in human courts of law should always condemn and never acquit or justify the ungodly. They should never show mercy to the wicked. They should never acquit or justify the wicked. God himself declares in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 7, I will not justify the wicked I won't do it even Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 describes God as directing his wrath towards all human wickedness but here in chapter 4 God is pictured as the one who justifies the wicked you got to ask yourself how can that be how can the righteousness of God justify the wicked? And the answer is simple. 
God can't within the perimeters and constraints of the law. Human courts are ordained to operate according to the principles of law. And God's own holy nature is bound by those same principles by law. But here, in verse 4 in chapter 5, the perspective is not of law, but of grace. We're not talking about what you earned. We're talking about what you're given. We're not talking about what you deserved. We're talking about what was credited to your account that you didn't earn, that you didn't deserve. Here we're talking about grace. And the principles of grace are the opposite of the principles of the law. So the holy God, who is a consuming fire, the one that will not justify the wicked, is also represented as a loving father who is gracious and merciful and counts righteousness to the unrighteous and justifies those who don't deserve it and who could not earn it. God counts as righteous the wicked. Those who cannot and do not deserve righteousness. And he does it not on the basis of the law, not on the basis of all of the Old Testament, but on the basis of the cross, which is the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And because of the cross, he counts as righteous those who are not righteous. Because of the cross, he counts them righteous by their faith, which means that they're no longer rejecting him, but they're obeying him by their faith. They're, they're, they're demonstrating in their faith that they're following him and they're turning towards him. They were wicked. They were unrighteous. They were ungodly. But the very faith that results in justification demands that they turn from their wicked ways, that they come out from among them, that there's a change in their life. That doesn't mean that he saves the wicked and they stay wicked. That doesn't mean that he saves the wicked and they remain entrenched in their wickedness. That doesn't mean that he saves a sinner and the sinner continues to wallow in their sins. That's not what it means. It means that he saves them by faith, and the very faith that saves them compels them to act, to change, to, to move in another direction. The very faith by which he saves them demands that they act, that they obey. If they do not respond, then they don't really believe. If they do not obey, then it's not really faith. Does that make sense? First time I've said that today. The example of Abraham underscores a very important fact. Abraham's faith was continually on display in his actions throughout the whole course of his life. That's the way it is in the life of a believer. A believer was once wicked, once unrighteous, once lost in sin, once a sinner without any hope. But their life reflects the fact that they've been saved. 
When they were a sinner, they lived like sinners. When they were a sinner, they did what sinners do. But now that they've been saved by their faith, and that faith compels them to obey the Spirit of God on the inside, to obey the directing of it, they don't live like they used to live. They don't talk like they used to talk. They don't tell the same lies they used to tell. Amen. They don't use the same language they used to live. They don't go some of the same places they used to go. They're not involved in some of the same things they used to be involved in. That's not legalism, my friend. That's simple obedience to the grace of God that saved me. Amen. They've been saved by their faith, and that faith impacts what they do and how they live. Their lives are no longer characterized by wickedness, but rather by the works of faith. They're not earning their salvation by doing good. They're not earning their salvation by not saying certain things and not doing certain things and not going certain places and all that, all that stuff. That's not, that's not earning salvation. That's living out the grace of God that they've already been given. That's living out the salvation that's already been placed in their life. That's living out the faith that has compelled them to the cross. Would you stand with me? But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. That description of God as the one who justifies the ungodly is the very essence of the doctrine of justification by faith. If salvation depended on merit, then we could not earn it. If salvation depended on what we do, then none of us could be saved because all of us would fall short. But God justifies those who do not deserve it. God saves those who have not and cannot earn their salvation. He saves us on the basis of our faith in Him. He saves us on the basis of the cross. The gospel message is simple. Jesus Christ died for us. He died in our place. He received the wages for our sins. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he rose again. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves us. When they asked Peter on the day of Pentecost, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter preached to them a simple message. He said, repent. Because repentance is all about dying with Jesus Christ. He said, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Paul would later write, we are buried with Jesus in baptism. And he said, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this promise is to you and your children, all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And Paul would later explain that that same spirit which dwelt in Christ Jesus, which, which quickened his mortal body, that it's going to dwell in you. That's the power. That's the Holy Ghost. That's that gift that Peter was talking about. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the gospel is what saves us. We're not saved by the act of repentance. We're saved by the faith that compels us to repentance. We're not saved by the physical act of baptism. We're saved by the faith that compels us to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We're saved by the faith that causes us to surrender our life to him and be filled with his spirit. 
I don't know about you, but today I'm thankful that God justifies the ungodly.